0: There's the wins and the losses, which, you know, always take on, I guess, an outsized life of their own when you're writing about them. But then you see a story like this and you realize it's really not that important.
1: From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. In the weeks leading up to April 6, 2018, Kevin Mitchell wrote the kind of stories he'd always written as a sports reporter for the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. In January, an article about a 54-year-old woman winning a provincial curling tournament. A few weeks later, a column on a moose moosejaw bobsledder who'd made the Olympic squad. And he'd been closely following the lacrosse team, the Saskatchewan Rush, who were undefeated in their first few games of the season. But then on April 6th, a bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos junior hockey team was driving to a playoff game when it collided with a semi-truck. 16 people died and 13 more were badly injured, many of them just teenagers. Kevin would spend months driving back and forth from Saskatoon to Humboldt, and over the next year, he'd write more than 40 stories about the aftermath of the crash, eventually earning him Journalist of the Year at the 2018 National Newspaper Awards.
0: Yeah, well, I'd actually just gotten home from work, and there was a note from another reporter saying that he'd heard that the Broncos' bus had crashed on its way to their playoff game. I didn't think too much of it at the time. You know, I'd, you know, you think maybe it was some kind of fender bender or something that's going to delay the game. But as the evening wore on, things just seemed to get worse and worse. I made some quick calls to the office and, Ended up driving back into the Star Phoenix and we had a meeting in there. How are we going to handle this? And by that time, we were already hearing that people were dead. And this is when I, you kind of realized that this was going to be really, really bad. And so from there, I ended up driving to Humboldt that night just to see what I would find there. And by that point, news was spreading pretty quickly, not just in the province, but across the country. You know, And I, I knew this was going to change a lot of lives. You could just tell right in the moment.
1: So I guess you knew that it was going to change a lot of lives, one, because it it seemed to be that you were heading into what you were going to find out was a terrible accident. But also, you really did have a sense of what this hockey team meant for the social fabric of the town, too, didn't you? I mean, they kind of had a special place there.
0: They do, yeah. I mean, you know, Saskatchewan loves its hockey and its junior hockey teams. You know, I grew up in a small town near Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, where the Prince Albert Raiders play. And, you know, I know what kind of following they have in the city, you know. They're very important to, to the fabric of the community. And it's the same thing in Humboldt, which is even smaller than Prince Albert. And, you know, the players, they come into the city and they... You know, they go to school there and they have friends there and and they eat at the restaurants there and they play hockey there. And they're just part of the community and they're part of the community that people hear about on a regular basis. You know, if a guy scores a goal, it's on the radio report the next morning. It was actually just shortly before the crash. There was a big blizzard, which happens quite often in rural Saskatchewan, that had blanketed Humboldt. And so the coach told the players, you know, that instead of practicing that day, they were going to shovel snow. And so they sent out an alert to people in the community. They just said, um, please contact the Broncos office and we'll send players out to shovel. And that's what the players did. And I talked to some of them about it later on, you know, a few months later after the crash. And they said it had meant a lot to them to see that hockey was not always the most important thing. You know, helping your community was also pretty important. And it gave them a different look at being a hockey player in a community like that. And uh, so I kind of knew as I was driving in, you know, that this was going to be something that would shake up not just, you know, most importantly, the families and and, and the people involved, but just the community as a whole was going to really suffer from this.
1: What do we know about the crash itself?
0: Yeah, well, the Broncos were going to a playoff game in Nipuan. And as they were approaching an intersection, there was a semi-driver coming down the other road that intersected with the highway the Broncos were on. He did not stop at all, but he just basically missed all the warning signs ahead of him saying there was a stop sign up ahead. He was distracted, he didn't see them, and he just drove right through that intersection. The Broncos' bus driver didn't have any time to react. And suddenly, you end up with, you know, this semi truck and this bus in a ditch, and and the bus is ripped open, and and it was, yeah, it was just a horrible, awful thing. When you see pictures of the crash site, you're amazed that anybody can survive it, you know. And yet, quite a few of the players did, with varying degrees of injury. But unfortunately, it took a lot of lives as well. And it wasn't just players on that bus who died. It was coaches and, you know, the team's athletic therapist died and and the radio guy died. And you hear these people's stories and it just breaks your heart to think that this is how it ended for them.
1: When Kevin arrived in Humboldt, he knew there was only one place people would be gathering, the hockey rink.
0: So by the time I got there, They'd already set up signs and they had food already set up there for people. You know, I talked to the mayor, he said the first place he thought of going when he got to Humboldt was also the hockey arena and he said he got there and he just saw people sitting in the stands, nobody on the ice, nothing going on, people just sitting there because they didn't know what else to do. They just sat in the stands and stared at the ice surface. And at that point, there wasn't a lot of media there. There was only, I think, maybe three of us. And so they weren't doing a lot to keep us back, so to speak. So, you know, we had access to this room. We were very respectful. I wasn't coming up to people and just talking to them. And, you know, and I wasn't trying to exploit the tragedy by any means. You know, somebody would suddenly get a phone call, and they'd start to sob because they'd heard some news about somebody that they knew who was on that bus. And, you know, that room stayed open, I was there till 2 a.m., and that room stayed open after that. Anybody who wanted to stay there for as long as they wanted to stay there, they were welcome there. And it was a strange place to be, and it was a, a very somber place to be. But there was also some laughter from time to time. You know, people tried to inject levity into the situation or tell a story about somebody on that bus. You know, and it was just this community that got together and did the best it could under almost impossible circumstances. And they were there for each other, and it was neat to see that. But. It was also hard to see it too because you know you knew what was going through everybody's heads and they were all experiencing the same kind of grief. It was not the kind of thing you ever want anybody to ever have to experience again.
1: In the hours following the crash, there was very little information coming out. And then the sister of Darcy Hogan, the Broncos coach, tweeted that her brother had died.
0: So we had a name all of a sudden. And then from there it became, you know, a lot of reporters were phoning families uh, or family contacts just to see what they knew. And names started trickling out. And then we got a number, you know, and suddenly you're hearing 13 are dead, 14, you know. And so as those numbers started coming out, you started to realize the enormity of it.
1: In the end, the crash would claim 16 lives.
0: You know, that's kind of the number that I know stands out now in in people's minds here in Saskatchewan. You know that when you hear the number 16, you know what that means. You know, it's those 16 people on the bus who who didn't make it.
1: So you you are, you were a sports reporter... How different were the stories that you were writing as a more traditional sports reporter to the stories that you started to write for this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've covered tragedy. You know, I've, you know, many years ago, a Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League player. Took a puck to the chest and died a week later, and I was kind of covering the story of the week, you know, as as we waited to hear, you know, what kind of outcome he would have. So I've done things like that before, you know, and you know, there's always tragedy in sports. There's always those kinds of stories, but there's also the stories about the football player who suffered a groin pull, you know, and um, yeah. you know, and those kind of things, right? And the wins and the losses.
1: I've had a groin pull. They hurt.
0: <laughs> they, they do hurt. Yes, and you feel bad for the poor <laughs> fellow who has a groin pull, and you have to write about it. But yeah, you know, and there's the wins and the losses, which. Which, you know, always take on, I guess, an outsized life of their own when you're writing about them. But then you see a story like this and you realize it's really not that important, even though it actually kind of is to those people at that time and those fans at that time. So, yeah, all of a sudden I'm thrown into this story where you're dealing with not one death or two deaths or three deaths, but there's 16 deaths. And people are shocked and they're stunned. And and it's this whole different kind of reporting. And you also want to make sure that you appreciate the time people involved with the story are giving you because they don't have to do that. You know, just the idea that, you know, they're trusting me with this story. And it's such a big story. And there's so many ways to tell it. You know, I remember telling somebody at one time that, you know, whether you've been on the story for a day or a year, I think we all, everybody was covering it, Just we all just felt so very small and so very tiny because the story itself was just so very big. You know, there's stories that will never be told out of this. And I've asked about it and they just don't want to talk about it and very respectfully said, please, I, don't, I just don't want to tell this story. And I've I respected that, you know. So, yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of like an octopus story, you know. There's so many different um, ways that it spreads out and it's just a question of how do you tell it.
1: I mean… You could also sort of weirdly argue that sports is octopussy that way, right? Because Mm -hmm. sports so often is like initially you think it is about the scores or the growing poles or whatever, but so often, you know, what happens in a league tends to kind of be like a microcosm or a small spotlight on something that's actually happening bigger in society. And this story, like, became so big in Canada and around the world but were you that surprised that it became such a big story
0: I think it hit me that weekend how big it was when I was getting calls I got a call from like a radio station in England you know at the night of the crash and that was when I realized oh wait a minute this is not a local story <laughs> you know this is much bigger than that it reverberated around the world pretty quickly you know On the Friday night, there was maybe three of us covering this story. And on Saturday, all of a sudden, we started getting reporters coming in, not just from Saskatchewan, but elsewhere in Canada. And then by Sunday, it was a big pile of us. You know, there was reporters all over the place. And the freedom we'd had to move around the first day was gone uh, for good reason. Everybody's trying to tell a story, you know, and we're all descending on this small city. And um, it was a lot for Humboldt to handle as well. It's not the way we wanted Humboldt to be put on a map, but we are so proud of our province, of our community, the city of Humboldt, everybody who's pulled together, and just happy to do our little parts, everybody who can do what they can. You know, everybody has to just be there for each other and do the best that they can to help all these young families get through a parent's horse nightmare.
1: Across the country, Canadians responded to the tragedy by putting hockey sticks out on their porches.
0: You know, I saw that breaking out, I think, that weekend, and uh, it took on a life of its own, you know, and even driving through Humboldt, I know, you know, a few weeks later you could see sticks everywhere, you know, so it kind of became this little symbol of support. You know, you still see, also in Saskatchewan, you see bumper stickers on cars, you know, Humboldt strong, and I think it gives people, maybe helps them feel a little bit better to know that, you know, they've thrown their support behind it. Even if it's a small way, you know, a bumper sticker or a stick, there's just something about expressing solidarity with people, even if you've never met them before.
1: But like every news story, this did eventually sort of, you know, did find its way off the front page, so to speak. But you kept reporting on it, didn't you?
0: Yeah, I spent the better part of that year, 2018, you know, I still have my other duties to do as a, you know, i the sports editor at the Star Phoenix, and I had a lot of other things to do, which I did, but this became the biggest part of my story. You know, if I had to let something go, it was always the other thing and not the Broncos stories. And then after that, I'll do the anniversary stories still. And there's other stories that come up sometimes. A park in Humboldt that's been turned into kind of a memorial for the players. You know, we did a story on that this summer. And things like that, I think those are still very important stories to tell. And so, yeah, I'm still keeping my hand in it, but it's definitely not as intensive as it was that first year. And I think we also need to give families space. You know, there comes a time where for their sake, I think you need to pull back and just let them, you know, go on with their lives. And, and I've always been kind of even when I was in the middle of, you know, doing all the reporting, there's always that thing in the back of my mind, you know, when do I pull back and just give these families their own space again, you know, as, as respectful as we are. And as much as we try to give them their space and privacy, you know, at some point, you know, when do we just stop with all the stories? And that, that was a thing I had to think about and our, my editors had to think about as we were going through this too.
1: Do you think you made the right call or do you think there were times that you let the drive to a story uh, go too far?
0: No, I don't, I don't think I did. That first week, there were probably times where I could have been much more intrusive and maybe a really good journalist would have been more intrusive than I was. I opted not to be, in part because I knew that that might hurt my chances of being able to tell this story further down the road. You know, So I was pretty conscious of that, even just that first weekend, you know. And just this, this idea that, you know, you have to respect these people and, and give them space when they need it. Um, you know, don't be afraid to make those phone calls when you need to. And But if they ask you to give them some space, give them that space.
1: Well, I think that's maybe what makes you a really good reporter. You said that maybe some better reporters would do that. But I actually think that's what makes you a really great reporter.
0: I, I hope so, you know. I mean, it's it's that whole thing where, yeah, maybe I could have got something really splashy that first night, but I'm happy with the story I told that first night, you know. It was very raw, but it didn't, I don't think it crossed any lines, and I think it also just told the tale of this city that was suddenly thrown into grief. Um, you know, there was no players there, of course, for me to talk to or anything like that, but it was, I was able to tell the story of a city that suddenly just got plunged into this story that was so much bigger than they were. And then I, I kind of stuck with the story, I dropped it off a little bit in 2019 and turned it over to other reporters. And then, when the trial happened for the truck driver, uh, I was asked to go back in again. Calgary residents, at approximately 10 a.m., our major crime investigators arrested the driver of the semi trailer unit, Jaskarit Sidhu, a 29 year old male from Calgary, Alberta. I've never covered court ever as a sports reporter. It's just never been anything that I've, I've dealt with. And when somebody that I cover does end up in court, it usually goes over to our court reporters. So in this case, I was with our court reporter, and we were in there together and covering this thing, and I was just writing color pieces off the trial every day. And, you know, I'd see reporters walking out of the court, just tears coming down their faces because they'd been listening to these victim impact statements, which were so, so touching and... Um, so horrible and hard to hear, but it was just families pouring out their hearts about, you know, what they'd experienced.
1: Jaskirat Singh Sidhu, the truck driver who hit the Broncos bus, was charged with 16 counts of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle causing death and 13 counts of causing bodily injury.
0: Yeah, Jaskirat Singh Sidhu was, was sentenced to prison It sounded like he was distracted as he was driving, Uh, hadn't had great training. And so I think there was a tarp or something that was not doing what it was supposed to be doing and he was distracted by this tarp and just never saw the signs. You know, there were warnings, you know, lights and, and signs saying stop sign ahead and he just didn't see them. And then, you know, the next thing you have is the Broncos bus is in the ditch and his truck is on its side and he's poking his head out through the top of the truck you know, looking around at this thing that he's created and I can't imagine how horrible that would have been for him but at the same time you think of the people on that bus and the parents who weren't there and yeah like it, it was just a horrible horrible thing and so you know watching him in court you know and the families giving their victim impact statements and telling about what this crash meant to them and Some of the families were willing to forgive him, other families were not, and I understood both sides of it. You know, I could totally see why one family might choose to extend, you know, a fig leaf of of forgiveness, and other families might say, no, you know, you've killed my son. I'm not, I don't have anything in me to forgive you. And I, I think I understand both sides of it for sure because everybody handles grief in different ways.
1: Our reaction to the sentence is we're disappointed. As far as the number goes, me personally, I knew I was going to be disappointed no matter what. There's, there's no number that would have made me happy. Well, for me, it doesn't change anything. It's, I mean, I guess for him it does, but for us, our life doesn't change. Adam doesn't come back. It certainly isn't closure.
0: You know he's just a normal guy you know just a guy driving a truck he didn't mean for it to happen he shouldn't have been in that truck that day he should have had better training he should have been paying attention to the road he did so many things that were wrong but you know his life is never going to be the same mr sedu advised me i don't want to make things any worse i can't make things any better but i certainly don't want to make them worse by having a trial he wanted the families to know that he's devastated by uh, the grief that he's caused them. And uh, he's overwhelmed by the expressions of sympathy uh, and kindness that some of the families and players have uh, expressed to him in spite of the fact that the grief is entirely his fault.
1: In 2019, Sidhu was sentenced to eight years in prison. Last summer, he was granted day parole, and he's currently fighting deportation to India. There was so much tragedy in this, but you also mentioned a couple of times that there were uplifting things that happened. Were there any that really stand out for you when you say something was uplifting? What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, it's it's hard to quantify because everything is dominated by the fact that 16 people died and 13 people were injured, you know, and nothing's going to change that so we talk about you know the good things that have come out of it we have to keep in mind that you know what happened itself was was just absolutely you know terrible and hopefully you know we don't see any other hockey team or other community going through this ever again but you know there's families who have done things used the platforms they've been given to do good work you know, Dana Bronze, her mother Carol, has become very involved in the blood donation movement because Dana, who was the team's athletic therapist, before she died, she'd gotten quite involved in, in donating blood. You know, it was something she did on the regular, and her mother wants to keep that alive. Almost all the families have different causes that they've gotten involved with. You know, Caleb Dahlgren, who suffered severe brain damage in the crash, you know, he wrote a best selling book this year. You know, he's done a lot of, you know, inspirational talking to people. He's, he's this. Got this personality, they're just suited for it. That's a guy who's used this platform to try to, you know, to try to do good, you know. And you just see those stories all over. Just these things that would not have happened if this hadn't happened, you know. Um, but I know the families would obviously still rather have those boys. And, you know, none, none of these things are going to bring these these kids back.
1: How does this live with you today?
0: It's hard. I've gotten to know a lot of these people, and you can kind of see close up what grief does to people. And there's so many different reactions to it, and so many ways that it impacts people. And it's hurt me. It's hurt me a lot to be in the middle of this. You know, and on, I mean, I was writing it as I was covering, you know, I, I had to write it as an outsider. I'm the observer, I'm supposed to be, you know, dispassionate and just kind of writing what I see. You know, I was not a part of the story, I was just a person who was telling the story. And so I had my reporter hat on where I'd try to stay emotionally distant as much as I could. It's, it's a fine line there between trying to stay emotionally distant from a story that is almost impossible to do that with. I mean, you know, I mean I'm a Saskatchewan guy, I was born and raised here and people who I know very well who don't know anybody in the Broncos, I've seen what it's done to them and how much it's affected them and you can't just kind of leave that behind. It'll never leave me, it never will, but life goes on and you know I have other things to report on now and other stories to tell and I'm doing that while also keeping in mind that there's also still stories of these Broncos that I think will still need to be told in the years to come and I'm quite happy to tell those stories as they come up.
1: This episode of True Crime Byline is produced by Emily Morantz and Mitchell Stewart and hosted by me, Kathleen Goldhar. Mixing and sound design by Philip Wilson. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica. Special thanks to Ashley Trask, the managing editor of the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, and Aaron Valois, the vice president, digital strategy for Post Media.